0: Well, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker this morning. Uh, In all honesty, we have uh, waited for a year for her to speak, uh, in part because uh, she'd agreed to come just before we stopped having services for a year. And so uh, we are thrilled to have Lauren Hunter here this morning. Uh, Lauren and Josiah were part of our community for a long time in college. Went off to North Carolina, did theological studies at Duke, came back at Whitworth now. And uh, anything that is good that comes from the Office of Ministry and Engagement, probably Lauren had a part of that. She is involved with uh, the Summer Fellows and a whole lot of other things there. But will you welcome with me Lauren Hunter? Hear me okay? testing. Testing. Hello. Thanks so much, Russ. That was very generous. And yeah, as Russ mentioned, my husband, Josiah, and I attended new community when we were in college. Um, We love this place and this ministry, Russ, and um, so many of you. It's great to see that I know and love, uh, especially when I was in college. Some of you maybe are in college and can understand this. Like all you were around were people who were in the same stage of life as you. uh, And so new community was a really helpful place for us to figure out what it meant to be in relationship with God and also living life with people who are different ages than us and thought different things than us. So I owe a lot of our own formation to being here. So thrilled to be here. I made the mistake telling Russ a year ago that I thought God was calling me to preach a little bit more. So here I am. Um, and I'm going to start with an, uh, something you shouldn't usually start with when you preach, which is an apology. You all are in a series called Hidden, um, where you're talking about these different characters in Scripture, maybe ones that you haven't heard before, maybe ones that led lives that weren't necessarily flashy or impressive, um, talking about how these—it it is in the mundaneness of life, the ordinariness of life, that that true faith is founded, that our relationship with God is really solidified. Um, so I spent some time thinking about a character I might want to speak about today, what characteristic of a hidden life of faith that person embodied, And I came up with the characteristic of rootedness, which is what we're going to talk about today. Then I looked back on the podcast and realized that Russ already talked about rootedness in your first week together. So we're going to talk about rootedness again. Um, We'll call it Rooted Part 2. When Russ talked about rooted the first time with you all, he spoke a lot about what it means to be rooted and grounded in the life of faith, um, in community, in values that stem from our relationship with God. And I think there's another important part of that word, aspect of that word rooted, that we didn't talk about as much with Russ that I think we're going to try and talk about today, which is this idea when you think of the word rooted, you think of the image, right? You think about the roots that descend from plants, from trees that suck up the nutrients, that give that, form, that foundation, provides life, So I want to talk about the physicality in this word rootedness today. And there's a character in Scripture that I think embodies this particularly well. So we're going to go all the way back to the Old Testament. Our Scripture this morning is from 1 Kings, starting in chapter 21. There was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard, for I want to use it for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you for whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, No. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. King Ahab lay on his bed sulking, refusing to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said... I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I will get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in King Ahab's name, placed his seal upon them, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him, and in those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, Seat Naboth and the prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and king. Then take him out and stone him to death. I'm going to paraphrase a bit here. Essentially, Jezebel does exactly what she says she'll do. She creates this elaborate scheme, a false charge that causes the people to riot against Naboth and kill him. So I'm going to pick back up in verse 15. Verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but is dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down, and took possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will look up your blood. Yes, yours. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. I find this to be an amazing story for a few reasons, one of which is where we come across this story in Scripture. This is in the book of 1 Kings. We're in the time of the Old Testament where we get large, sweeping narratives about points of history. We get these big figures that sort of tell us what happens in this period, right? In the book of 1 Kings, this goes one of two ways. There was this king who ruled in Israel. He did a great job, and God was really pleased with him. We love that. That barely ever happens. Then we get kings like Ahab, kings that do evil on the side of the Lord. Here are some things that happened during King Ahab's reign. God was displeased. And then there was a new king. So we get these long periods of history with these big figures describing what happens at these different times. But that is all interrupted by this one little story about this one farmer And his one plot of land. Talk about a hidden life, right? Naboth lives, like, does not live a sexy life in any scope of the imagination. He's a farmer, he's always lived on that plot of land. You heard that. This was the land that belonged to his ancestors. So Naboth's great great grandfather, his great grandfather, his grandfather, his father like, this is a man who has never left this land. His family has never left this land for generations. Nowadays, when we hear that about people, we associate that with things like small-mindedness or, wow, that person isn't very well-traveled. They're not very well-cultured. This was Naboth's life. He didn't die in some valiant battle like some other people we meet in Scripture. He also didn't have this great epiphany of, I think I'm going to leave this life. I'm going to follow my dreams. But he dies standing by the land that he and his ancestors have stood by for generations. He cares so much about the land, and the more that you read the Old Testament, the more that we see that God cares a lot about the land, too. Land is very important to God and the people of God. In fact, God, when God was giving land to the Israelites, split this land up between the tribes of Israel Basically, to make sure that everybody had a plot of land for their own. Sorry, y'all. Can you hear me okay? Um, Basically, so that everyone could have a plot of land for their own, right? So, God says, this tribe gets this plot of land. This tribe gets this plot of land. This is to ensure that all of these people are well taken care of. Difficulties. Thank you. Um, so God gave different people allot, tribal allotments. So essentially, these people have land that they are in control of. This keeps them from fighting between one another. It makes sure that they are taken care of, and it also makes sure that the land is taken care of. God was also involved in setting all these structures and regulations for how that land was to be taken care of. For example, God created something called the Year of Jubilee. Every 50 years... If you had land as an Israelite and you had traded this land away, you had debts, you had to sell this land for some reason, at the end of 50 years, any land that was originally yours would revert back to you, to your family, to your tribe. This was an alternate system, right? Where land isn't something that you buy and sell. Land is something that is yours to provide for and take care of. And in this year of Jubilee... God also made sure that the land would lie fallow. There would be no farming on the land. This was to keep the land healthy. So when we meet Naboth in our story, Naboth is offered probably a great great sum by the king, maybe even a better plot of land, and decides not to sell his land. This isn't selfishness. For Naboth, the land is tied to his faith, the faith of his fathers, enough that if he was to sell this land, if he was to commodify this land, to him it would be the equivalent of blasphemy. Um, You can show, I've got a picture, uh, an artistic rendering of Naboth that I just love. It captures the seriousness of this state for him. Essentially in Naboth's voice, this would be, "I'm, I'm more willing to sell my body. I am more willing to give up my life then give up the land that God has given to me and my family. Now, this is opposite of what we hear about King Ahab. King Ahab wants this land for a vegetable garden. I read that, and I'm like, great, That, that sounds like sustainable, vegetables, healthy, this is a great thing, maybe this is a good king, right? But essentially, King Ahab wants to do exactly the opposite of Naboth, treats the land in a way exactly opposite of how Naboth does. I call this kind of the Ahab or the Jezebel way of understanding the land. First of all, you see King Ahab seeing the land as property to own, right? His power and his wealth is what gets him this land. Land is to be bought and to be sold, he also sees the land as something that serves him. Ahab's got a fleeting desire. I think today I would like a vegetable garden. I will have a vegetable garden, right? Like, it doesn't matter who that, who that land belongs to or what that was used for. I have a fleeting desire. It's also convenient for me. It's right next to my palace. So I will take it. And Ahab's understanding the land is also really transitory. This is a fleeting desire he has. And the land is one way to cater to that fleeting desire. It's not something to steward, to care for. The Ahab way, to me, sounds like a lot of the ways that I think especially within our situatedness, within our culture, within America, the way that we tend to view land as well. Part of this is it's, it's baked into the structure of our life. We can't get away with it. I know that probably for the last year or so, I can't go a week without talking to my barista or a student at Whitworth or a professor about the Spokane housing market and how totally horrendous it is. I see you nodding. It's wild, but it's something that we have to live in. We have to be a part of. We have to think about things like, do I buy or do I rent? Is this a good return on my investment? Uh, when we move, is dependent on the market, and based on what we buy or what we rent, we share some of that power to decide which land is cared for, which land isn't, which land is accessible, which one is not. We also hold power that affects the land in other ways in the choices that we make, the choices that we make that have ramifications for how place is treated, for how land is treated. We too, like Ahab, make choices for convenience's sake. You have to, I mean, Amazon. I am as guilty as anyone else. Maybe some of you are super holy and you don't shop on Amazon anymore. I sure do. That two-day shipping is really hard to argue against, even though I, like, I hear about how this is not, like, there are questions of dignity and treatment of workers. There are questions of how the environmental damage is being caused by this multi-billion dollar corporation. But I still choose the convenience. Or another example, this one is, I'm particularly passionate about, is the fast fashion industry. I care a lot about clothes. I just like think it's fun and I love to think about that stuff. I love shopping and all of that. And in America, I looked this up this week, Americans... On average, right now, throw away 14 million tons of clothing per year. And it takes 200 plus years for any item of clothing to totally decompose in a landfill. On top of that, it takes about 80 gallons to produce one cotton shirt. So when we choose to buy clothes, and we choose to throw away clothes, whether or not we're aware of it, there is an environmental impact. We are affecting the land. Same goes for things like food. Industrial industrial agriculture is a major driver of things like fossil fuel consumption, rural poverty, greenhouse gas emissions. The list goes on and on and on, and these are probably already things you've heard of, things that you feel guilty about. It's overwhelming. This is the Ahab way, where land, where people are often commodities, where place provides the opportunity for wealth, not a place to put down roots. We certainly don't always think about God in relation to these choices that we make, in relation to the impact that our choices have on our land. When I first read this story, and I thought about this offer that the king makes to Naboth, more money, better land, my response to Naboth would be, that sounds great. Take that offer. You can worship God anywhere. Don't you understand? God can't be put in a box. God isn't anchored to a place. Go anywhere. I, I put got a quote, quote with me so y'all can flip the slide. This is a quote by Eugene Peterson. I find that cultivating a sense of place as the exclusive and irreplaceable setting for following Jesus is even more difficult than persuading men and women of the truth of the message of Jesus. For Naboth, it's not a matter of, I'll just go and be a Christian somewhere else. Right? He would not have been able to conceive of that as an alternative. That, to Naboth, would seem like a faith that wasn't rooted, a faith that wasn't anchored down in the material world. And the early church actually made a name for this. They called it a heresy, the heresy of Gnosticism. The idea that we serve God, God is a spiritual being, thus anything in our world, our bodies, our land, all of that is just sort of material that can be bypassed. Everything about our pursuit of God is spiritual. We don't need land. We don't need bodies. And becoming closer and closer to Jesus means disregarding more and more of that material life. Being rootless. This is actually opposite of God's vision of shalom, which is all about being rooted. You all have talked about shalom. It's a Hebrew word essentially describing God's vision for us, for the world, as right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and right relationship with the land, with creation. This right relationship doesn't just mean absence of conflict, we can live alongside one another, we can live on the land together, but it means flourishing with one another, with each other, with God, with the land, living in harmony together. And this is something that Naboth lives out. Living in harmony with others in the land for him is just a necessary overflow, an outpouring of his relationship with God. Now, this way of understanding land, land as something sacred, land as something integrally involved in faith, I don't know about you. I know I don't speak for all of you. For me, that feels foreign and kind of different. The closest thing that I can imagine is when I think about a a church or something, a building that has been designated for God, that has been somehow destroyed, defecated, something like that. that. That does make me feel like there's a sense of wrong. I think back to when Notre Dame, the cathedral in Paris, was on fire. Maybe some of you remember that day I was on campus at Whitworth where I work and It was like everybody was receiving live updates, people who had been there before, but also people who had not been there before. Shocked and lamenting at this communal loss of a place that held so much sacredness, so much history. Even though it was a place that wasn't, you know, integral to our lives, a place we had never been, a place we didn't own, there was a communal sense of loss, acknowledging the sacredness of that place. That feels as close as I can get in my imagine to this understanding of land and faith. And I, th- I think there's a reason for this. A fully interwoven understanding of faith and land is something that may be hard for a lot of us to understand. Because of our situatedness in history, because of how many of us are the ones who are often taking land or benefiting from land that has been taken, from a view that sees land as commodity. A theologian that I've grown to really love and appreciate, his name is Dr. Randy Woodley. He's a Native American theologian. I've got a quote from him as well. He wrote a book called Shalom and the Community of Creation. And in this book, he talks about something he terms the harmony way, which he describes as core Native American values for life. And essentially what he argues in his book is that the Harmony Way is already a way of living out shalom. He says both shalom and the Harmony Way set out practical steps for a vision of living. They both have justice, restoration, and continuous right living as their goal. And perhaps more importantly, they originate as the right path for living, being viewed as a gift from the creator. The Harmony Way, the Shalom Way, is not about dominating land, is not about owning land, but cultivating the same sort of generosity with the land that mirrors the generosity of God. For Randy Woodley, for the Native American communities he's seeking to write about, it's more natural to see the spiritual significance of place, to see faith as intertwined with the way that we treat the land. And for those of us for whom maybe that is not as natural, we just have more work to do. It requires repentance for the ways that we have lived the Ahab way of life. It requires listening To communities like Randy, to the native community in Spokane, to be learning, to be listening. And I think as we listen to these voices, we will also listen to our place. There's a word that we use when we talk about studying scripture, exegesis. Basically means you you sit with the text, you sit with the Bible, and you ask a lot of questions. You say, okay, what's, what's the cultural context? How does that affect the way that I'm interpreting this story? What's going on here? What are the important elements of this story? How do I interpret this story for myself and my community? Go out and do a neighborhood exegesis. This is an exercise that I've been lucky enough to be led in uh, by before. This requires being in a place and asking questions like, what is the history of my neighborhood? What happened here? What memories do the people here, do the land, what do they hold What is God saying through this neighborhood? What do the buildings, what do the zoning legislation say about the people that live here, about the land? What are the streams, the air, the forests, the fields, the parks, the insects saying? How can we protect this land for years to come? Did you know, I did not know this, that most indigenous communities measure and evaluate any contemporary actions they take, any buildings they build, anything they do with the land, they evaluate those actions based on how they project it will affect the next seven generations. That's a rooted life. Our culture is one that increasingly values unlimitedness. Like, we see that even more now. Zoom is a reality in all of our lives. We can be anywhere at any time. Putting down roots is not as important. I have a friend who is his job is working for the Humane Society, a Humane Society in Rhode Island, managing their social media page. He has never been there. He has never met these animals. But that's his job. That's what our limitlessness, those are the opportunities that that unlimitedness allows for us. And there are undoubtedly opportunities here. But there's also something so sacred about knowing our limits, about living in those limits, even the ones created by geography, by place, and being rooted there. I actually think back to a lot of my time here at New Community and Russ, a sermon that Russ gave and now this is, you know, 10 years ago, about how important it is to know your neighbors. I remember him asking us to get out a blank piece of paper and to try and write from memory who lived all around us. As someone who lived in the dorms, that was really easy for me, but it wasn't for everyone else, right? This idea that we should be so rooted in our communities that we know who is here, that we know the needs, that we know the gifts that are present here. I think this also means thinking about maybe contributing to local businesses in our area. Josiah and I live in the Monroe Street neighborhood and we have recently felt more challenged to be asking questions like, what's the economy like here? Who owns these businesses? Are these our neighbors? Can we be buying here instead of from other places? It also means caring more deeply for the land and how it's treated, cultivating healthy, safe land. In my work at Whitworth, I get the privilege of sending out a lot of students to serve in ministries all over Spokane, and we've partnered with a really unique ministry called Growing Neighbors, and essentially they did what I'm suggesting this morning. They did a neighborhood exegesis. They're located in the Shadle Park area, and they started asking these questions. Where is God already moving? Where is justice and shalom already happening here? What are the needs of the people? What is the history of this place? And as a result of asking those questions, of talking with people in the community, of really setting down roots where they are, they came to realize that the history of the place and the needs that have been historically present in that place centered around food insecurity and community, lack of community. So Growing Neighbors, this ministry was born, their mission is to grow healthy neighborhoods through urban farming and community development. They don't even necessarily have one centralized community garden. But what they do is they partner with neighbors in the Shadle Park area, go to their land, help them plant gardens and cultivate gardens in their own space, harvest that food, make it available so that these neighborhood families are starting to emerge and gather around the work of tending to these gardens. We have a few students who are serving there this year After every summer, inevitably one of them is in my office trying to weigh this crazy juxtaposition that they've witnessed. One of the total unsexiness of gardening, like the monotonous picking of weeds. You're out there every day in the sun and nothing comes of it. On the other hand, the absolute riches, the fruits, both literal and metaphorical, that come from their time in these gardens, the conversations that are had over picking those weeds, over those meals spent in community together. And most years I have a student say something like, it's so strange because we aren't praying, we aren't reading scripture, but it feels so sacred. It feels like Jesus is somehow there. And that makes so much sense to me. Jesus is the one who makes this way of life possible. Paul says in Colossians, In Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Everything in earth is gathered up together with Him. In Him, all things are held together the people, the land, the creation. The scandal of what we believe is actually based in rootedness. It's crazy that we say we believe in a God who limited God's self to being one person in one physical place, in one time of history, walked and traveled in a relatively small area, got dirty, paid attention to the people and the land. God's movement of shalom the harmony between land and neighbor is happening. God is on the move here in Spokane. And this little farmer, the scandal of this one farmer causing issue because of his refusal to commodify land is a witness to that shalom. And it's a shalom that you and I are invited to participate in too. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for being a God who is rooted, who stands firm with us, who understands what it is to have bodies, to walk, to need food, to need community. We ask that you will give us your heart for shalom in this city, that you might be showing us the ways in which we can partner with what you are already doing, Give us the willingness to repent of the ways that we haven't always done this well and call us into a life of shalom with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.